Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And we left you last week. We left you opened up by the surgeon. <laughs> and that we hope that that gave the Spirit of God some time to work in you, and now we'll begin to sew you back up again. What I'm referring to is this. What we've been looking at starts back in Philippians chapter 3. We're not going to turn there. Where the Apostle Paul says that, talks about his own ambition as a Christian, which should be ours, which is first of all to know him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering. We'll talk about that later on, that we can be conformed to his death. Now, he's not talking about his physical death. He's talking about death to his will, death to who he was as a separate, any, anything separate from Christ. That's the death he's talking about. And, and resurrection only comes after a death. And God has provided for us a resurrection life, not just in heaven, that's our body, but here on earth. The kingdom of God is within you. The power of God is within you. The life of God was in you. The joy of God is within you. But most Christians not only aren't living it, they're not experiencing any of it, and many of us don't even know it exists. And yet it's in you. And the secret to that life, it's a resurrected life. We'll probably talk some about that on Easter, which is coming up. The secret to that is the resurrected life, but resurrected life can only come after there's a death. Jesus was only raised from the dead after he died. And so the Apostle Paul is not talking about his physical death because that's not what he was looking forward to. He's talking about a death to his own independent life, a death to himself as an independent, separate being from God. Because in the, in the Garden of Eden, what happened, it's not the fruit, it's not all that. What happened in the Garden of Eden is Satan tempted Adam and Eve to, to establish a life apart from God. On the illusion the deception that God was keeping something from them, so they grasp for it with their own hands, their, with their own will. The fruit is just representative of what they did with their will. They chose to take something for themselves instead of receiving what God had for them. And by doing that, they chose to establish their own kingdom. And that's what man's been doing ever since. That's an illusion because there are only two kingdoms that exist in the spirit realm according to the Bible. There's the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. There's no third kingdom, which is the kingdom of John, the kingdom of Jerry, the kingdom of Michael, the kingdom of Susan, the kingdom of whoever you are. There's no such thing. You're either living in one kingdom or the other. And if you think you're living your own life, I can tell you which kingdom you're living in. I'm not talking about whether you're saved or going to heaven. I'm talking about what you're living in. You can be a prince living in a slum. You're still a prince, but you're living in a slum. And you can be a child of God living in this world as if you still belong to this world. And so in the garden, what they were tempted to do was to change kingdoms. Change from God's kingdom and all the blessing. We spent a couple of years ago a lot of time on that. And Satan sold them the lie that he's been selling mankind ever since. But Jesus came back through the cross to redeem us back from that, from that sin and to give us the right to step into, back into God's kingdom from which that first man stepped out of. And when you come to Christ, that's what you do. But Paul saying that my determined purpose is to know him, to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. We'll talk about that sometime. That I may be conformed to his death, that my life may be lived as if I were a dead man to myself and alive only to Christ. And then we went and looked over, how did Paul, all right, that's a nice goal, how did he live it out? How did he get there? Because we saw at the end of his life, it was a life of victory. 
It was not a life looking back saying, this people backslid, you know, all the, pri- all the, thing, all the price I paid for. It was, the, it was the words of a triumphant man who was writing them in prison about to be executed. How could he have that perspective? Because he had the right perspective where so often we've got the wrong perspective. We have an earthly perspective. And that's what we've been talking about. So we saw that the key is over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 where Paul says, talks about this, this example of running a race. And he says, in, in the Olympic Games, everybody runs, but only one can win a prize. And that prize is just a, a laurel wreath on their head. But they, they, they're tempered in all things. They're self-controlled in all things. They're disciplined in all things because everything they do is to help discipline them and prepare them to win that prize. He said, and they do that in knowing only one's going to win the prize. But we run in a race where everybody can win. But in order to win, we've got to run by those same rules. We've got to be just as temperate and more temperate than they were. We've got to be just as disciplined and more disciplined because if we're not, we're going to get distracted from that goal and we won't reach that goal that God has for us. And therefore, Paul ends in verse 27 of chapter 9 and says, because of that, he uses a different example, the example of a boxer. A boxer goes into that ring with a boxing plan and with a specific his purpose is to win the bout, whether he knocks his opponent out or wins by scoring, but, his, but he has a strategy of how to do that. And he's trained for that strategy, not only physically trained himself, but he's also mentally trained himself. He knows what that strategy is. So every punch he throws has a purpose in line with his strategy that his manager and his trainer have come up with for him to win that boxing match. In, in order to do that, he has to train physically. If you've seen the Rocky movies, you see what he put himself through in order to, for those few minutes in a ring with his opponent. And Paul ends by saying, you know, I beat my body. Some translations say I buff, buff, buffet. No, buff, buffet my body. Some translations say I discipline my body. But the word in Greek refers to a, a leather strap that the boxers would wrap on their own hands and they would punch themselves in the face to toughen up their face tissue so that when they got in the ring and were hit by their opponent, their face wouldn't swell up and close their eyes off. They did that to themselves. And that's the example Paul's saying for us as Christians in order to finish our course with joy, in order to, to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of us, we have to discipline ourselves, do it to ourselves. And then we saw Paul goes into chapter 10 with this example. And we'll read down through it. I'm not going to go through all of it again. But I want to read it to kind of bring us back to where we were over the last few weeks. We're going to go down chapter 10. This is an example now, example of what Paul's talking about, about the discipline. And he uses the children of Israel as an example. Moreover, brethren, I don't want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under a cloud. Under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses. That means they were followers of him. In the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food. That was the manna and the quail that God dropped from heaven. All drank of the same spiritual drink for the, spirit, for the drink of the spiritual rock that followed them. That was Christ. Talked about the water that came out of the rock. In other words, they all had the same experience. All the, all the Jews traveling out of Egypt over to the promised land because God had a land he was calling them to. He had a destiny for them. He laid hold of them because there was something he had for them, which was the promised land. In the same way, God has laid hold of you and has laid hold of me, and he's brought us out of our Egypt, which is the world, because he has something for us to do. We're something God has called us to do here that he has laid hold of you for. And the question is, are we going to lay hold of the same thing that he's laid hold of us for? And so this is an example in here because they, God laid hold of them to bring them to the promised land, but they didn't make it. 
So there's a lesson in here for the church because so that we would learn the same things that they didn't learn so we would not experience what they experienced, which was to fall short. And that's what this is talking about. Verse 5, But with most of them God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now, they didn't make it. They, they got to the promised land. They sent spies in to taste the promised land, and they came back and reported everything God said about is true, but we can't go in there because there are giants in there. There are enemies in there to keep us out. And because we are like grasshoppers in their sight and in our sight, we can't go in there. And because they didn't follow the discipline that God gave them for that whole year going through the Sinai Peninsula when he was preparing them. Deuteronomy 7 and 8 tell us that he was preparing them. And because they didn't learn the lessons God had for them, the little lessons every day, when they got to the doorway, they refused to go in. God didn't keep them out. They refused to go in. And the lesson for that is if we don't learn the same lesson, we can come to the opportunity God has for us. And God won't take it away. We won't take it. Why? Because we'll look at the opportunity and look at ourselves and say, I can't do that. There are too many obstacles. It's too difficult. I'm not strong enough. I'm not spiritual enough. I'm not this enough. That's the same thing they said. We're like grasshoppers in their eyes, and so are we in our eyes. The reality, if you look later on when they get to 40, 30, 40 years later, 39 years later, when they get into the promised land, they discover that their so-called giants and enemies were scared to death of them because they knew God was with them. They knew God had supernaturally delivered them. Their enemies had more faith in God than God's children had. And Paul's saying, this is in here as a lesson for us, which means it's possible to be called by God, for God to lay hold of you, pull you out of the world, prepare you and destine you for something that he has for you to do, and you look at it and you pull away from it. It's interesting because Paul talks about to Timothy. He says, in these latter days, many, not a few, many are going to fall away. God doesn't push them out. God's not angry at them. They choose to get distracted by other things. They choose to get overwhelmed from following Christ. They choose, not God makes them, they choose to slip away. Why? Because they didn't learn the lesson that Paul's teaching here. God has a purpose for this church just as he has a purpose for your life. The purpose for this church is the purpose for your life because this church does not exist separate from you and me. This church is not this building. It's not the changes we're going to make to the stage and the, and the front and all these, you know, the, the audiovisual stuff. It's, that's not the church. The church isn't the blue chair you're sitting in. The church isn't the air conditioning in the summer and the heat in the winter. The, this is the, what houses the church. The church is the body of Christ. It's you and me. So when we say that God has called this church for a purpose, he's called you and me together to do that purpose. But the lesson here is we can be called, God can train us, and if we don't learn the lesson of the training, we'll walk away from it when it's presented to us. And they didn't come to that place suddenly. The reason they walked away from that and pulled back was because they didn't learn the lessons every day that God taught them and trained them in. So when they got there, they were prepared. That's just what he's talking about here. There were two that did enter in. They were Joshua and Caleb. And we'll talk about them later on. Verse 6. Now these things happen as examples for us to the intent that we should not lust after evil things. 
that they also lusted after. They became, do not become idolaters as some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. I'm not going to go through what all these mean again. We've talked about that before. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 fell. These were all things to pull them away from God's purpose. Nor let us tempt Christ. That was to, that was to, to, to rebel against him as some of them tempted him and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor complain as some of them complained and they were destroyed by the destroyer. All these things happened to them as examples and they were written for our, admin, our admonition upon whom the ends of this age have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. The warning here is, and I've had to s- deal with some situations like this lately, where people found themselves in situations they never dreamed they would be in, never intended to get there. I've never... I've never really talked or counseled somebody who fell, whether it was sexually or, or, or to drugs or anything like that, who intended to. It was all because they thought they could handle it. All because they looked at themselves, you know, I've been a Christian long enough. Um, you know, we can all name pastors and people on television that have fallen, and they all have one thing in common, several things in common. One thing in common is they thought they could never do that. Their confidence was in their own determination never to do that. And Israel ended up in a place they never dreamed they could end up. They were confident that they would do whatever God told them. They told Moses that we don't need to go see God on the mountain the way he said. What we'll do is you just go tell us what he said and we'll do it. They were confident in their own determination. Peter was confident in his commitment to the Lord. I'll die with you. I'll die with you. And we all know what Peter did. He was shocked that he could do that. Why? Because he looked at himself and his confidence was in his own determination. And that puts a bullseye on you for Satan. In fact, he says, I got a, I got, it's like taking a steer of, and, and, and getting them separated from the, from the, from the, from the, the um, herd. Thank you. And get them separated from the herd and pick them off. I can handle this all by myself. I can do this. Let him who thinks he stand take heed, lest he fall. And look at verse 13. This is where we left off last time. For there's no temptation. Not most of them. There is no temptation that has overtaken you such as is common to man. That has two sides to it. That's good news in the sense that God doesn't, the devil doesn't have some special temptation just set up for you. That nobody else was ever fallen for, it's just set up by you. So boy, you're going to be so blindsided because you'd never have any chance to know this is coming. No. Paul saying, the devil has nothing to use against you he didn't use against them in the garden. He has nothing to use against you he didn't use against everybody else that's fallen. There's, no thing, there's nothing un- new under the sun when it comes to temptation. The other thing is to be aware that just because others, just because you, know, you think you can't do it, there are many people around you to look at as examples, not only in our age, but in ages before Samson and others, even King David, who fell. And if they can fall, you and I can fall. But as long as we learn the lesson, that won't happen. That's the good news. All right, now, what's the lesson? How is it that we do this? This is where we left off last time. How is it that we are to avoid this temptation? Are we to do it in our own strength? And that's what gets them in trouble in verse 12 because they think they in their own strength and their own ability can do this, can resist Satan's temptation. But God is faithful. 
Not God says you're faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful. God is... What we're going to find is that in this resisting the temptation, in this disciplining ourselves so that the things of this world don't pull us off course, you're not in that alone. God's involved in this with you more than you realize, and He's faithful. He's faithful. Even when you're faithless, He remains faithful, it says in 2 Timothy, for He cannot deny Himself. He is faithful. So that's what our foundation is on. Uh, It's not my faithfulness. It's God's faithfulness. Okay. What's He faithful to do? But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So He's watching over this process. He's watching over this process so that He will not allow the devil to bring any temptation to you that He hasn't determined two things about. So wait a minute, why would God allow a temptation to come? He doesn't bring it. Jesus in the prayer He taught His disciples says, lead me not into temptation. God won't lead you into temptation. James chapter 1 says, God doesn't tempt anybody with evil. But He's placed us in a world that's ruled by evil. Why would God allow us to be tempted? Because it's in the resisting of the temptation and the dealing with the temptation that you learn two things. You learn not to trust yourself. And you develop your faith in what God is able to do through you, in you, and through you. If you never have to deal with temptation, you never become strong and recognize it and resisting it. There, there are mistakes I've made in my life because I blew through warning signs that I should have known better and I burned my fingers. Not literally, but you know, it's like sticking your finger in the soft, you know, you burn your fingers because you get, you were careless around the, the, the stove. Well, that, guess what? You remember the next time you get near the stove, I know something bad happened here. You know, I may not know what it was, but I just, I've been here before and it wasn't good, so it's enough to stop and make me question what am I doing. So we learn about ourselves. We can't trust ourselves on our own. We also learn about ourselves, learn how to recognize and to overcome that temptation, and then we can help others, not only to recognize and overcome it, but we can help others who stumbled to come back up again and pick them back up again. Because the Bible says we all stumble in many ways. And therefore we can identify, this is why God doesn't want us looking through the beam that's in our eye and judging the splinter in everybody else's eye. The reason, one of the things about our own weaknesses is that it, it helps us to identify with other people's weaknesses and be compassionate with them and help them together. Together we help them to overcome. It's kind of like a story I've heard about, um, we won't finish this today anyway, about the story I heard about, uh, uh, about um, a, 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 a race, I don't know, it was a 100-yard dash or in the Special Olympics. You know what the Special Olympics are. It's people with either mental, mental or physical handicaps. And they were running this race, and, uh, and in this race, this one girl, I think it was a girl, fell. She just, because of her, her, her uh, situation, couldn't finish. And the leader turned around and saw what happened and stopped. And then the others turned around and stopped, and they all went back, and they picked her up under the arm, and they finished the race together. And we call them handicapped.
Sometimes our handicaps and weaknesses make us a little more humble. And we realize I'm not in this life to beat you and get there before you do. I'm not in this life to get richer than you are and more successful than you are. I'm not about to come, I'm not in this life to get the end as a Christian, look back and say, ha, 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 boy, what a rough time mess you guys are. I made it! That shows I don't understand that I'm part of the body of Christ. Maybe the reason we haven't seen the outpouring of the Holy Spirit yet it's because he can't flow through us because we're not joined together enough. Because he flows through the body of Christ. Not the fingers, the little toe, the body of Christ together. And so his work has to start with bringing us to a place of unity. It's called the unity of the Holy Spirit. I don't know how I got off on all that, but that's where I think God was taking us this morning. Amen. Praise God. Where was I before you distracted me? <laughs> All right. Oh, yeah. Two things God knows. First of all, He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you were able to handle. We're talking about why God will allow temptation in your life. But with the temptation, you always know there's two things that He's determined. That he'll, he will en- enable you to bear it so that you can go through it. Not avoid it. Go through it. That means be victorious. Overcome it. And so many Christians, including us in many cases, we're not overcoming. We're being bound up by different kinds of temptations, whether it's things that are controlling your flesh, whether it's alcohol or drugs or tobacco or something that just isn't honoring to God, or something even stronger, whether it's, whether it's pornography or sexual sins or anything like that. And we've got so many Christians are bound up by the devil in those things and not able to get free. And yet God has said, I will not allow you I will not allow a temptation to come to you that I have not determined that first of all you can bear and I will be faithful to strengthen you so that you can bear up under it until you get through it because the goal is to get through it and free of it. Well, how is that to happen? That's what we talked about last week. We're going to look at today because what we do so often is we try to do it in our own strength. We try to do it in our own determination. They're called New Year's resolutions. We feel guilty because we overate in the holidays. And now people, it's interesting because you can see on television, the ads for weight loss programs just explode. Why? Because they know they got you. They know this is the time people are going to feel guilty and I'm going to make money off of your guilt by offering you to help you to do something that you're going to try to do yourself and won't be able to succeed in it anyway. But God has provided a way. So we're going to look at that. Let's go... Let's go to Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at the problem. I've, refer- I've mentioned it to you, but we're going to look at it in a little more detail. I was praying this morning and saying, Lord, for where I believe you want us to go and the vision that you want to share with us, it seems to me, as we're talking about something different, 
let's get on to the vision. And I really felt the Lord show him. He says, no, I'm preparing people. I'm preparing people. Let's look at... Um, Let's look at Ephesians 2. And you, he's just talked about that Paul's prayer for the, for the church was that God would open the eyes of their understanding, that they would see three things. That they would see the hope of his calling for their life is in Christ Jesus. That they would see the glory of the inheritance that we all share together in him. And that we would see the exceeding greatness of the power that he displayed towards us when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So he's saying... I'm praying for God to open your eyes to see how great this power is that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, and now he's going to talk about us. And he said, and you were dead in your sins and transgressions. This is talking about where we were before we were saved. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So your spiritual condition is you were dead. In the Bible... Spiritual death means separation from God because God's the source of life. So to be separated from life is to be dead even though your body may be functioning spiritually. That's when Adam died. It says literally in Hebrew, God said to Adam, if you eat of this branch, if you eat of this fruit, of this tree, in dying you will die. So it implies two deaths. There's an immediate death, which is the spiritual separation from God, and then there's the physical death that would eventually result come as a result of that. So we were dead. You may be walking around in a body, but spiritually, we were dead unto God. We were not aware of God. We knew, may have believed in our mind there was a God, but we had no relationship with Him. We had no connection to Him because we were spiritually dead. You, when you were dead in your sins and transgressions, in verse 2, in which you once walked, So not only were you spiritually separated from God in your sins, but you walked in those sins. You lived in those sins. Walk in the Bible almost always refers to how you conduct your life. In which you once walked according to the course of this world. That's the flow of this world. This world has a flow to it. It has a momentum to it. And it is a momentum of sin and of bondage and of death. Remember Jesus said to his disciples in Matthew Seven, I think it is. Either five, it's in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, you know, there's two roads. That's a way. There's one road that's wide and easy, and everybody's walking down this road. And there's no obstacles in the road. It's just nice and easy. The only problem is where it goes. It leads to death, spiritual death. Then there's another road you can choose. That's a different road. It's very narrow. So it's, it's, it, you've gotta, you can't just walk into it with all your baggage. You've got to leave some things off to get in this road. And it's difficult. It's a challenge. And there are only a few that find it. But oh, where it leads to. It leads to eternal life. So there's two different ways. The reason the first way is easy is because it's walking in the same direction with the course of this world. This world has a flow to it, a momentum to it. I heard Jerry Seville and some others have done a great example of what this is like. And, and if, you, if you can look at it, this is worth settling down and taking some time in. If you work at it in terms of being in a, in a river or a stream that has a flow to it, and the flow of this stream, let's say, is going this way. But Jesus just told us this is according to the course of this world. This is the direction the world's going. 
So the world thinks this direction, the world talks this direction, the world acts this direction. We live in a world and a culture and everything around us that's looking this way, that's seeking this way, that's developing everything in their life to help them flow in this way. And we're going to look at it as kind of like a stream or, or a river. It has a flow in this direction. So the easiest thing in the world and, the, and all we could do until we came to Christ is we just floated along in it. You ever go in these water parks? They have, many of them have this, this flowing stream that you can get in this inner tube and just kind of lay back in this inner tube and you just kind of float with it wherever it's going to take you. Of course, it takes you in a big circle so you can get off again. But, but the life is like that. And whether you're in a boat or you're just floating on your back or you're just doggy paddling, all you've got to do is be in it and you're just naturally flowing in this direction. But when you came to... But the problem is, this is headed to death. This is headed to hell. This is headed to destruction. And somewhere along the line, you woke up. You heard the word of truth, as it says in, it says in, Romans, it says in uh, Ephesians chapter 1.13. You heard the word of truth, and you believed it. And when you believed it, and you called on Christ, you turned around. That's what repent means. You turned around right where you were. Not back there. You turned around where you were in life at the point you saw this and believed this. The problem is, just because you turned around, you're still in a world that's heading this direction. Spiritually, you're going that way, but everything else about you is headed this way. So we've got to exert some effort to go this way. We've got to start paddling upstream. Because the course of this world is pulling us downstream. And while you're paddling upstream, the devil will send some of your old friends, some of your family, some of your co-workers who are paddling, floating downstream to say, hey, you're going the wrong way. We used to float together. We used to have fun together. There's, no, there's work in what you're doing. Why do you go to church for two hours on a Sunday when you could be out? Hey, we could be going to the ball game and we could be doing this. That's fine. I mean, this is work. You worked hard all week. Why don't you just relax and have some fun and float with us? Yeah, that's nice and easy. The problem is where they're going. And if we get too distracted by them, pretty soon we stop paddling so hard and then we stop paddling and whether, even though we're facing this way, we're drifting according to the course of this world. And then we come to our sense and we've got to start paddling again, paddling upstream against the course of this world. And then you run into some Christians who have their canoe headed upstream, but they're not paddling at all, and they're wondering, you know, why are you working so hard? Why do you, you, you get involved in church? Why do you read your Bible? I mean, you know, after all, we're all in God's grace. You know, God loves us all. We're all headed the right direction. Well, I'm headed the direction, but where am I drifting? You've got to stop sometimes and just take a spiritual inventory of your life compared to where you were when you got saved. If you haven't grown since you got saved, unless it was last week, or, you know, this year, then you need to go do some serious praying. If you don't see some progress, some fruit, some growth in you, 
you may be faced the right direction, but you may be drifting according to the course of this world. All right. That's what this means when it's talking about according to the course of this world. And we were dead. We were headed the wrong direction and flowing according to the course of this world. According, look at this, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's Satan, and the spirit that now works, works in the sons of disobedience. And we were part of that. The Bible says Satan is the god of this world. Adam turned it over to Satan. It says it in a number of places. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, clearly there. Satan is the god of this world. He is the prince of, the power, prince of evil. And he is in control of the things of this world. The spiritual atmosphere, not heaven, the spiritual atmosphere around here. He is in control of the storm. He's in control. They're not acts of God. And we were part of that system. The spirit that now works in the sons of discipline, verse 3, among whom also we once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. So your mind has lusts also. And were, look at this, were by nature children of wrath just as the others. That's where you were when you came to Christ. That's where you were when you did what, Rome, what chapter 1, verse 13 says. And you who believed when you heard the word of truth. That's where we were. Dead to God, flowing according to this, the flow of this world, dominated by our flesh, whether you thought you were or not, and spiritually dead to God. Oh, but verse 4. And by nature... You were children of God's wrath. But God, but God, but God, who is rich in mercy. Oh, it's worth, we can't do that this morning. It's worth just taking some time. When you get up tomorrow, whenever you open your Bible, just to take that and just, but God. I was dead. But God. And why did he do it? Because he's rich. In mercy. Because of his great love with which he loved us. The Amplify says, because of and in order to satisfy the great and intense love with which he loved us. God didn't have to save you and me. He didn't have to, he did it because he wanted to. For chapter one talks about to satisfy the good pleasure of his will. You're not in Christ because you were so smart, because God just broke down and finally had mercy on you. You're in Christ to satisfy his love and desire for you. but God who is rich in mercy. When we were dead, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when you were dead in your trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and he raised us up together. Notice that together. And made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding greatness of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. That's who you were when you got saved. And here's the issue. The part of you that got saved was your spirit man. 
God took the old man out. Remember, you were by nature children of wrath because your nature was of the devil. God took that old nature out when you came to Christ and God put his nature in. Ezekiel 37 talks about that. Or 36. He took out that heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. Then he put his spirit in you. His life in you. His spirit in you to make you alive. That's what makes us alive unto God. As God put his spirit in you. He did in you, in me, what he did in that first Adam. Back in chapter 2, verse 7 of Genesis. He breathed in him the breath of life. And he became a living soul, it says. When you came to Christ, because of the cross, God could do this. He took that old nature out of you that wanted to do what was wrong, that was going according to the course of this world, and he went... He breathed into you the breath of life, his spirit, his ruach, his breath of life to make you alive unto God. Now the, the, your real nature of who you are does not want to live according to the course of this world. It has a different family. It's changed families. It's changed natures. But here's the problem. Your body didn't change. And your body was the agent, the tool, the receptacle, the planner, of your sin and the lust of our flesh. That didn't change. So now we've got God's nature, God's child, uh, God's purposes, God's desires in us, but they're living in a body that still comes from the world, will go back into the world, and has the appetites of the world. What do we do? This is why Paul says you've got to get them under control because you can be born again, filled with the Spirit of God, tongue-talking, Bible-toting, you know, you can have bumper stickers all over your car and all over your house and, you know, whatever, you know. But that's not the evidence. The evidence is your life. That's what people can see. So when we ended last time, how do, what do we do? Well, God says, look, I won't allow something to tempt you or test you that I won't prov- make you able to handle it and provide a way of escape. How has he done that? Well, let's go over to Romans chapter 7. And we'll really just get into this today because we have the Lord's table we're going to celebrate. This is why Paul says in Romans 12.1, we usually start in 12.2, which says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But verse chapter 1, he says, therefore make, because of the mercies of God, make your body a living sacrifice. holy and acceptable to the Lord, which is your reasonable service. Romans. That way I told you to go. Romans chapter 7. I'm so glad this is in here. Chapter 7, chapter 6 talks about the law, about the law and about sin, and that we're, because we're dead in Christ, we're dead to sin. And yet, of course, we all know it's very much alive. Um, and in chapter 7, he talks about his own personal experience. Now, most commentators believe, and I agree with them, that this is talking about Paul after he's saved. Verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For what I will to do, and the reason he wills to do it is because he's got that new nature inside. What I will to do, I don't practice. 
and what I hate, that's the very thing I do. Anybody relate to that? Now, if I, if then I do what I don't will to do, then I agree with the law that it's good. But now no, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, no good thing dwells. Why? Because it's still of this world. It hasn't changed. That's the redemption that Paul says we're all looking for. That's what at the end of Romans 8 he says, we're still groaning. Creation's groaning. Christians are groaning. Why? To be delivered from this body once and for all. So we don't have to fight and have to row upstream with it. Because the boat you're in is your body. I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me, but how to perform the good I don't find. This is Paul. For the good that I will to do, I don't do, but the evil that I determine not to do, that I practice. Now if, look at this. If I, now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin dwelling in me. It's not my real nature that wants to do these things. I find then that there's a law that evil is present in me. That's in my flesh. The one who wants to do good. For I delight with of the law of God in the inward man. I go to church. I hear what, read my Bible. I see what, what the Bible, what Jesus talks about in, in the Sermon on the Mount. About, I see His commandment to love. I want to do those things. But it seems like the more I try to do what I want to do, the more I end up doing what I don't want to do. And that's the struggle Paul had. You notice in this section of Scripture, the Holy Spirit's not mentioned once. But if you look carefully, you'll find the first pronoun, I, me, is there at least six or seven times. Paul's looking here at what it's like in his life, his experience. Now that he's born again, now that he has got, doesn't have that nature of wrath on the inside, but he's got God's nature on the inside, that new man on the inside. Now that he has that new man, that son of God on the inside, but he's still dealing with this body on the outside that comes from the world, that's of the substance of this world, that will stay here and dissolve into the substance of this world, that still has the appetites of this world. So Paul says, when I see something in the Word of God, when I hear the Spirit of God tell me that, and I want to do it, my flesh is all confiding me. It doesn't want to do that but my flesh comes to me and it really wants to look at this stuff and read this stuff and talk about this stuff that I know inside me is wrong and I'm struggling with this and Paul's talking about here I want to do what's right but I don't seem to be I I I don't seem to be able to do it the Holy Spirit's not mentioned once in here it's all I, what I can accomplish, what I'm able to do to overcome this, my effort, my trial to overcome it. And I believe with all my heart, God has to let us all try. Just like he had to let Peter declare his determination. God has to let us all try until we come to the same place Paul came to. I've tried. <laughs> and I look back at my accomplishments and there may be few times I think I overcame it, but then it's followed by many times where I fell short. And if I did overcome it, I became proud of overcoming it. Look where he ends up here. Look where he ends up here. Verse 23, For I see another law in my members, 
warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members, my flesh. O oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh of law of sin. Now he didn't write this in chapters and verses. This is the same thought. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that some translations say this and some don't. Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do because of the weakness of my flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of flesh, He condemned sin, my sin and your sin, in His flesh. So that the righteous requirement of the law may be satisfied in those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Now look what he goes on to say. Verse 5. For those who live according to the flesh, dominated by the flesh, following the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. What we're talking about here, we're going to see it when we get into Galatians, which will be next time. It won't be next week, but it'll be next time. As he talks about walking in the Spirit. Paul talks here about walking according to the Spirit. And I've yet, Lord, what does that mean? I mean, that's great to hear it and read it, but how, what does that mean in my life? To walk according to the Spirit, to live in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit. It doesn't mean, ooh, oh, Ron, oh, the Lord saith, thus saith the Lord to thee, O oh, Ron. God has called thee to be an apostle to the nations. Oh, God. Whoa. And my life's falling apart. Can't pay my bills. I'm in rebellion against my husband and my wife. I can't get along with people. Full of strike. But oh. Where, what, where? The measure of your spirituality is where the rubber hits the road. It's in your relationships. The fruit of the Spirit. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? He tells us here. What is it you set your mind on? What do you think about during the day? Now, I know we have to go to work. We have to prepare meals. We have to do things. But even while you're doing those things, you can think about the Spirit realm. See, remember, you're a man on the inside. This man or woman on the inside, this nature, this is a Spirit. It belongs to that Spirit realm. That's the nature, the change that took place in you is in the spirit realm part of you. See, we're the only creature that ever God ever created that lives in both kingdoms, both realms. You have a body that belongs to this natural material realm, but your spirit man belongs to one of two spirit realms. Either Satan's or God's. And so sitting where you are right now, when you get up to go home or go eat or wherever you go to do, you're taking in your body, which is of this realm, you're taking a spirit realm inside of you with it. And to walk in the spirit means to be more sensitive and aware of the spirit man inside of you and God's spirit inside of you than you are conscious of what's going on around. Now, obviously, to walk home, to drive home, you've got to be conscious of what's on the road ahead of you. But Paul's saying here, he said, because when we, 
when we're walking in the flesh, our mind is thinking in terms of things of the flesh. And that doesn't just mean, I can't, have to, I gotta, can't wait to have something to eat. It means I'm, my mind is just consumed with stuff of this world. And that's what the devil does. This is his deceit, is to keep us so busy trying to figure out how I'm going to make a living, so busy how I'm going to solve this problem, so busy how we're going to, what are we going to do about this? I don't know. What are we going to do about that? Oh, do you see the news last night? Did you see what happened? All of that is looking at, meditating on, talking about the course of this world. And we spend how much time thinking about, talking to, meditating on the spiritual world that's on the inside of us? No wonder we're dominated by our flesh. We give most of our attention to it. Spend, and you've got to realize that we're used to that. You've got to realize it's the real sensitive part of us because it sees things. But, but what, you know, you see the doctor's report. You can feel the lump, but that's your natural senses. That doesn't mean it's not there, but that's your natural senses. And so when our, we're so ruled, so spend so much time, we give so much credence to our natural senses, we have trouble when the Word of God tells us anything else, when it says that by His stripes you were healed. And we speak some words, we pray some prayers, we say the name of Jesus and wonder why didn't anything happen. Because we spent so much of our time ruled by, focused on, talking about putting our confidence in things that our senses tell us. But your senses can only tell you things about this natural world that's flowing according to the course of Satan. Those who are in the spirit, those who are in the flesh, set their mind on the things of the flesh. Those who are in the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Verse 5, verse 6. For to be carnally minded, that means body-minded, flesh-minded, is death. But to be spiritually minded is life and peace. He's not talking about where you're going to go to heaven or not. He's talking about what your life is like on this earth. And there are many Christians who may be alive unto God, but they're living in a death on this earth. They're, 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 they're just, they're, everything is in failure. They're, because the carnal things, verse 7, the carnal mind is at enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Then those who are in the flesh, those dominated by the flesh, cannot please God. doesn't mean God doesn't love you, but you can't please Him because you're dominated by a realm that's controlled by His enemy. But you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he's not in him. That means if Christ isn't in you, then you don't belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, Verse 10, then the body's dead because of sin, but the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Why? Because Christ's righteousness has been attributed to you because now you have his nature in you. But if the spirit of him who raised Christ Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through this selfsame spirit. Look at verse 12. Therefore, brethren, Paul's just described in those first 12, 11 verses what God did for you on the cross. Now he's going to talk about what we should do in response to that. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. Just because you've, been a mate, because you've been made alive by the Spirit, now we're not debtors to our flesh, we're debtors to the Spirit. In other words, why are you living according to the flesh 
when you've been made alive on the inside according to God? Why are you allowing your flesh to determine things and dominate you and control you when you've got God living inside of you? The kingdom of God, the life of God, the peace of God, the joy of God, the fruit of God that he wants to produce in you. Why do you allow your... We're not debtors to the world. We're not debtors to our flesh. Just because your flesh wants to do something doesn't mean you have to do it. The reason you seem to is because you've given into it too many times. But greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. You've got the power of God in you to overcome that. And that's the problem. We've tried to overcome it by our own power instead of by the power of the Spirit of God. I'll read one more verse and then we're going to prepare to receive the Lord's table. Verse 13. If you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit, 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 not by your determination, if by the Spirit, not by your friends getting together and agreeing with you, if by the Spirit, if by the Spirit, if by the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. You did not receive a spirit of bondage leading you into fear, but a spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. God's put His Spirit in you to have the power and strength of God to overcome that dirty pile of flesh that you live in. But we've not learned to allow Him to do that because we spend so little attention, time, looking at the things of the Spirit, reading the Word of God and allowing the Spirit of God to show us things in the Spirit. We're going to pick up next time in Galatians. I encourage you to read Galatians 5 because it talks about the same thing. It says, although we've been set free by the Spirit of God, don't allow that freedom to get you thinking that you can just let your flesh run loose. And that if we walk in by the Spirit, we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. One of the ways firemen are taught to put a fire out is to remove, remove one of the three things it takes to burn a fire. It takes three things to burn a fire. It takes oxygen, it takes fuel, and it takes heat. If you take one of those three things away, is that right? Then the fire, will, you, won't, you, don't, you don't put it out. You take away what it needs in order to burn. And the Spirit of God in you will bring you to a place where that desire that you have will no longer control you because the Spirit will have developed such an influence in your life that that stuff will look like nothing to you compared to the life of God that's in you and flowing out of you. That, that pornography, that drugs, that cigarette, that food will have no... It's there. You may, your flesh may say, but oh, how about me? And you'll look at it and say, I don't care about you because I'm tasting eternal things. The life of God. I have no appetite for you anymore because the life of God, and that's through the Spirit, and the problem is we've been looking in the wrong place. We've been trying to use the flesh of this world that's still sold into this world to overcome itself, and it doesn't have the power or the ability to do that. That's why the law was given to prove to them that they couldn't do it by themselves. Let's pray. Father, we thank you as you're leading us down this path that we may come to that place of victory, not in ourselves, but victory in Christ through the power of His Spirit. Lord, in this week and weeks ahead, begin to open the eyes of our understanding to see the Spirit man inside of us, Lord, that we may be led by Him more clearly, led by Him, and allow Him to bring Christ's life alive in us, that He may live in us, for us, and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.